guys, I'm Ray Belli, and this is Words for Granted, a podcast that looks at how words change over time. If you love the podcast, you can show your support via Patreon. Just head over to patreon.com slash wordsforgranted, or you can follow the link at wordsforgranted.com. Every little bit adds up, really. For just a buck a month, which is less than what you'd pay for a bad cup of coffee, you'll gain access to contributors-only bonus episodes. Not only that, but you get to walk away knowing that you're helping to sustain the output of this independent show. The next contributors episode is going to look at some unlikely cognates of the word hell. The episode that you're currently listening to took so long for me to put together that I didn't get around to releasing this bonus episode yet, but I promise it's well in the works and it's coming soon. Okay, let's get on to today's show. The final episode in our four-month-long series on biblical etymology. Yes, the biblical etymology series is coming to an end. I could have kept going for at least another few months on this topic because it's just so vast and interesting, but it is time to move on. I don't want it to feel like Words for Granted had permanently become a Bible study podcast and that there was no returning from this. However, if you guys really liked the series, shoot me an email at wordsforgranted at gmail.com and let me know And if I get enough positive feedback, I will return to this topic again sometime down the line. As the title of today's episode suggests, we'll be exploring the word God. But as you may have noticed, the title isn't just God, but God and his other names in the Bible. That's because in the original Hebrew texts of the Old Testament, God is called by a handful of different names. These include Yahweh, Adonai, El Elohim, El Shaddai, El Elyon, El Olam, and many others. Most of these words lack precise English translations, and each of them has its own connotations. But before we start deconstructing ancient Hebrew, let's take a look at that familiar English word, God. God is a native English word that goes all the way back to Old English. Although it was spelled the same, it would have been pronounced as God. If we go beyond English, we can trace its etymological roots back to the Proto-Germanic word Gudan, which also meant God, but in the more generic sense, as in any god or deity. When spelled with a lowercase g, the modern English word God still has this connotation. Gudan is the root word of the word for God in not only English, but all of the modern Germanic languages. When Old English inherited this Germanic root word as God, at first it still meant God in the generic sense, and only in the generic sense. The first English speakers were the Anglo-Saxons who had migrated to the British Isle from continental Europe, and the Anglo-Saxons originally were pagans who worshipped a pantheon of many gods. However, after they were converted to Christianity in the 6th and 7th centuries CE, those Anglo-Saxons took the native pagan term God and associated it with the creator of the universe in their newly adapted religion. However, 
There was arguably a better word that the Anglo-Saxons could have used for the newly introduced Christian god. That word was Os. And Os is any important deity in the main pantheon of the original Germanic gods and goddesses. In Norse mythology, which is a Germanic mythology, the god Odin was an Os, and Thor was an Os too. You would think that this word affiliated with the most important gods would have been applied to the one true god adapted from Christianity, but for some reason that I don't know, it wasn't. I mention this because it highlights the somewhat arbitrary nature of the word by which we English speakers call the Judeo-Christian creator of the universe. Had things turned out differently, we very well could have been calling him Os. Point being that God is not God's inherent name. The fact that the word God is used with the pronoun him is also a result of the word's association with Christianity. You see, before the Anglo-Saxons' conversion, God was a grammatically neuter noun. We haven't talked much about grammatical gender on this show, but if you've ever studied a foreign language, you may have encountered masculine and feminine nouns, each of which has its own particular endings and grammatical rules. Well, in addition to masculine and feminine, Old English had a third grammatical gender known as neuter, and this was the original gender of the word god, or god as it was pronounced back then. Once God became associated with the Christian God, however, it became a masculine noun, reflecting the assumed gender of God himself. Of course, modern English doesn't have grammatical genders, so none of this is apparent or relevant to us today, but it's worth mentioning because it's somewhat uncommon for a word's grammatical gender to change. Even more interesting than this shift in grammatical gender is the word's shift in grammatical number. Before God became a Christian term, apparently it only occurred in the plural form. So, to be precise, the singular word God actually derives from a word that generally meant gods. In a way, the singular noun God is both a linguistic and a theological consolidation of many gods into one. In just a bit, we'll see how a similar phenomenon occurred in one of the original Hebrew words for God as well. As far as I can tell, that's the extent of what can be said about the word God itself. But before moving on, a quick digression. God is not cognate with good. This is an etymological error that has been made in ignorance not only by everyday people, but also by historically influential lexicographers and philologists. The giveaway that these words are in cognate is, surprisingly, in their spelling. In Old English, long vowels were literally long, and short vowels were literally short. In other words, long vowels had a longer duration than the short ones. Old English represented the long O sound with two O's. Today, we generally pronounce two O's together as OO, but in Old English, two O's were actually pronounced O. The word good, spelled G-O-O-D, would have been pronounced something like GOAD, whereas GOD, G-O-D, would have been pronounced GOAD. 
In Germanic languages, it is an etymological law that words with long O sounds and short O sounds never share a common Proto-Germanic root word. So, there you have it. Even without the technical linguistic tidbit, semantically, this concept doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Even though the Judeo-Christian creator of the universe is called God, that same word is still applied in a generic sense to countless pagan gods, i.e. false gods, so the semantic quality of being a god is not inherently good. Now that we've discussed the origins of the English word for God, let's turn to the Hebrew words for God as they are found in the Old Testament. Now, as I've said in the last few episodes, please excuse my bad pronunciation of Hebrew. I'll be sticking to anglicized pronunciations, but they should be close enough to the real thing to give you an idea of how these words are pronounced. The first Hebrew name for God on my list is El. The Old Testament calls God El over 200 times, usually as part of epithets, including El Shaddai, El Elyon, and El Olam, among others. We'll discuss the individual meanings of some of these epithets soon, but first I want to focus on the historical semantics of El itself. El is a very ancient word, more ancient than the Hebrew language as a whole. It has cognates in all of the major dead Semitic languages, including Phoenician, Akkadian, Ugaritic, and it even has cognates in Arabic, the most widely spoken Semitic language today. You may have heard of the Arabic word Allah, which is the name for God promoted by Islam. Well, Allah is cognate with El, one of the oldest and most common names for God in the original Hebrew texts of the Old Testament. The Hebrew El derives from a common Semitic root word meaning God. It's the same El found in the place name Israel and in personal names like Daniel and Samuel. El was a generic term for any god in the ancient Semitic languages, but it was also a proper name for certain high-ranking gods shared among various Near Eastern pantheons before the emergence of the monotheistic Israelite religion, a.k.a. Judaism. Perhaps the most significant of these pantheons to our story belonged to pre-Israelite Canaan. Before the Canaanites were conquered by and assimilated into the monotheistic Israelites, they were polytheists who worshipped many gods. In the original Canaanite religion, El was the proper name of the top god in its pantheon. This is neither a coincidence nor insignificant. There's abundant evidence that the El in the Old Testament, which, again, just to clarify, is simply the god that we all know and love, is actually a borrowing or reworking of this older Canaanite god named El. For starters, the Canaanite El was believed to be the singular creator of the universe, which of course is something also attributed to the Israelite El. According to some stories, the Canaanite El was believed to have dwelled in a tent, and before the construction of the first temple, the Israelite El also was believed to have dwelled in a tent. In Canaanite lore, 
L is at odds with mythical monsters named Rahab, Behemoth, and Leviathan. If these were just monsters from an extinct Near Eastern religion, no one but the most specialized of scholars would ever have heard of them. But these monsters also appear in the Old Testament as adversaries of the Israelite El. Not only that, but the words behemoth and leviathan have permeated the English language as somewhat common nouns. But that's besides the point. I don't want to dive much deeper into the potentially controversial topic of comparative religious studies, so let it suffice to say that the word El as a proper name for a powerful creator deity has a long history in Semitic cultures that predates Israelite monotheism and, by extension, the Bible. Like I already mentioned, the word El usually appears as a part of epithets, so now let's turn our attention to a few of these. In the book of Genesis and in Psalm 78, God is called El Elyon. This literally translates to God Most High, or God the Highest, and in most English translations of the Bible, this is how it's rendered. In the Bible, the word Elyon on its own also appears as a term for God. On its own, Elyon is a directional word meaning uppermost or topmost, hence God Most High. In Genesis, Jeremiah, and Isaiah, God is called El Olam, which literally translates to eternal God. That Hebrew word Olam comes from a root meaning eternity. In English translations, this name has been rendered as phrases such as the everlasting God, the God of eternity, the God of the universe, and the God of ancient days. Whereas El Elyon and El Olam are fairly straightforward, the next name on our list, El Shaddai, is not. In English, El Shaddai is often translated as God Almighty, or Lord God Almighty, but these aren't exactly accurate translations. These English translations more closely echo the meaning of Pantocrator, which is the Greek word that the Septuagint uses to translate the Hebrew word El Shaddai. The Septuagint, for those who don't know, is the first Greek translation of the Old Testament. Pantocrator is a Greek compound that means all-powerful, almighty, or omnipotent. But if this isn't what El Shaddai means, what is El Shaddai? The meaning and etymology of El Shaddai is highly debated among biblical scholars. Probably the best-known interpretation of El Shaddai is God of the Mountain, this etymology connects Shaddai to the Semitic root word Shadu, which means mountain. For millennia, many Near Eastern religions portrayed supreme gods as dwelling atop inaccessible mountaintops, so this title may reflect an old and common religious trope. It might also refer to specifically Mount Sinai, which is the place at which the Ten Commandments were revealed to Moses. Other scholars have interpreted El Shaddai as God of the Wilderness. They make an argument that connects Shaddai to the word Shaddai, which means uncultivated field or place where animals dwell. The Bible tells us that after their exile from Egypt, the Israelites wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, which, according to this theory, would explain the semantics of this epithet. But there's more. Other scholars connect Shaddai to the root word Shaddad, which means to destroy and plunder. 
If this is correct, then El Shaddai means something like God of Destruction, which, indeed, the Israelite God wreaks quite a bit of in the Old Testament. This interpretation is most in line with the Greek Septuagint's translation of El Shaddai as Pantocrator, which again means all-powerful, but I don't think that that necessarily lends this theory any more credence than the others. In my research, I also came across a fringe theory that connects Shaddai to the root word Shad, which is Hebrew for breasts. The idea here is that the Israelite god could actually be a fertility god. Scandalous, I know. It may seem totally wacky, but given the lack of scholarly consensus across the board, I don't think we should rule anything out. Whatever the case, don't let the nearly unanimous translation of El Shaddai as God Almighty trick you. No translators are exactly sure what it means, and this convention is really just a convention, a trend that's been repeated again and again over the course of history simply because it's familiar. There's another name for God in the Bible that derives from El, but it's not an epithet, and it appears almost ten times more frequently than the name El itself. That word is Elohim, and it's actually just the plural of El. Elohim literally means gods. That's a bit strange, isn't it? God's name is gods? Well, let's back up. In the context of ancient Near Eastern religions, Israelite monotheism, that is, the Israelites' belief in a single god, was an innovation. It was something new on the religious landscape, and it didn't emerge overnight. As I've already demonstrated, early Judaism was very much in contact with polytheistic religions, that is, religions that believed in many gods. Well, somewhere on the spectrum between monotheism and polytheism is a concept called monolatry. Monolatry is defined as a belief in the existence of many gods, but the worship of only one of them as supreme. That word Elohim may very well be a remnant of a monolatrist worldview practiced by early Israelites. You see, even though Judaism and its offshoot Christianity would later come to espouse the idea that there is only one true God, that idea likely was not there from day one. This may sound like a radical claim, but it really isn't when you take a moment to think about it. Even though the Israelites believed that their god was the supreme god, this monotheistic leaning evolved out of a culture dominated by polytheism. To the earliest Israelites, the memory of those other gods, the gods worshipped by their ancestors and their neighbors, would have been at the forefront of their minds. In fact, it's apparently at the forefront of God's own mind when he gives Moses the Ten Commandments. The first commandment literally states, Quote, you shall have no other gods before me, end quote, implying that there actually are other gods that could be had over God himself. Modernist biblical scholars pretty unanimously interpret this as a monolatrous decree. God himself is acknowledging that at the time the Torah was written, the Israelites believed that many gods existed, and this first commandment is like a rallying call to get everyone on the right team. But what does this have to do with the word Elohim? Well, like I said, it's the plural word gods, but when used as a proper name for God, it behaves like a singular noun. 
Given my brief introduction to monolatry, you might think that the Israelites used the word Elohim for their God as a way of saying that their God was like all of the other gods smushed into one convenient package. In other words, their one God was actually all the gods. That's not exactly the case, but it's almost the case. According to Hebrew grammar, which admittedly I know nothing about, so I'm just taking scholars' words for it here, the im of Elohim, which usually indicates the plural, could render the word's meaning as God of gods. If this is true, then one of the most common Hebrew words for God in the Old Testament actually acknowledges the existence of other gods. It's simply a designation of the Israelite God as the most supreme one. I don't know about you, but to me, it just doesn't get any juicier than that. Insights like this are literally the reason why I do this show. I should note that in English versions of the Bible, Elohim is universally translated as God with a capital G, a convention that completely takes this fossilized remnant of polytheism out of the picture. The next name I want to discuss is Adonai. Like Elohim, Adonai is a grammatical plural noun that is used as a singular in reference to God. In Hebrew, Adonai literally means lords, or lord of lords, and lord, the singular, is the conventional way of translating the word into English. Like the English word lord, Adonai also had a non-religious usage in Hebrew. If you think of the secular meaning of lord, it is usually a term used by an inferior social class to address someone of a superior social class. We don't really speak like this anymore, but I think you know what I mean. Adonai had a similar implication. It was a way of addressing masters or superiors. In order to stay on track, I won't go into a detailed etymology of the English word lord, but I will say that it has very old Germanic roots, and it comes from the old English compound halafwerd, which literally meant bread guardian or bread keeper. If I do a second series on biblical etymology, I will definitely get into that one. It's an etymological fallacy to claim that a word's original meaning has anything to do with its true meaning or its current meaning, but it is nonetheless amusing and amazing to me that at one point the phrase Lord God could have meant something like a divine guardian of bread. Last but not least, let's discuss the name Yahweh. Yahweh is the name that God calls himself in the grand reveal to Moses on Mount Sinai. It's a historically significant name because it's a brand new name. Unlike all of the L-derived names for God that we've previously discussed, Yahweh has no historical predecessor in the pantheon of Near Eastern deities, and it's also not an adaptation of a pre-existing common noun. With that said, its definitive etymology is unclear. The predominant theory holds that Yahweh derives from an archaic form of the third-person singular in perfect conjugation of the verb to be. In English, that would be the equivalent of he was being. This theory is corroborated with the famous verse from Exodus in which God tells Moses, quote, I am who I am. Thus, you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you, end quote. 
I am, of course, is also a conjugation of the verb to be, and God talks about himself in the third person as if his name were I am. Although, I am who I am is the most common English translation of that line from Exodus, a more accurate translation might be, I will be who I will be, because the original Hebrew line, Eye Asher Eye, is actually in the first person singular imperfect tense. In the context of ancient Hebrew, this implied the future tense as we indicate it in English with will. But don't let this technical grammatical stuff trip you up. The main idea in this prominent theory is that the name Yahweh is, in essence, a form of the Hebrew verb to be. Other attempts of literally translating Yahweh into English include, I am the being, I will become what I choose to become, and I will become whatsoever I please. I should note that ancient Hebrew did not have letters to represent their vowels, so the actual pronunciation of the vowels in Yahweh at the time the name was revealed cannot be certain. The name was passed down through the ages as the four Hebrew letters Yod, He, Vav, and He, which we transliterate into English as YHWH in all caps. This way of representing the name Yahweh in writing is known as the Tetragrammaton, which literally means comprising four letters in Greek. Now, even though Yahweh is the most common Hebrew word for God in the Old Testament, and probably the best known of God's biblical names even by lay people, in many English versions of the Bible, the name itself seldom appears. In a trend pioneered early on in English translations of the Bible, Yahweh is rendered as LORD in all capital letters in a smaller font size than the rest of the text. That's weird, isn't it? The word Yahweh doesn't inherently have the hierarchical implications of LORD that we already discussed, and furthermore, what's with the difference in font size? Well, from approximately the 3rd century BC onward, Jews stopped using the word Yahweh in rituals because it was considered too sacred to be uttered aloud. When reading from the Torah, they began substituting the word Adonai for Yahweh, and when referencing Yahweh in other instances, they began referring to it as Hashem, literally the name. When the Old Testament was translated into other influential languages such as Greek or Latin, the scribes maintained this old Jewish tradition of name substitution, and this tradition was carried on into English. The difference in font size is supposed to indicate that what you're reading is a substitutive word. If you listen to my episode on the letter J, then what I'm about to say next should come as no surprise. Yahweh is actually the same name as Jehovah. It's just a newer way of rendering it. For more on the historical development of the letter J, you can check out that episode in its entirety, but in short, the letter J was originally a variation of the letter I, and for a long time, the letter I was used to represent Hebrew words that began with the letter Yod, even though in English they were being pronounced with the modern J sound. Anyway, Jehovah was the middle and early modern English way of anglicizing the name Yahweh. This is why Jehovah is the form of the name that appears in the King James Version, which was written in 1611. When we pronounce the name as Yahweh today, it is truer to the original Hebrew, and this trend did not start in English until the 19th century. Well, 
I think that's it, and I feel like I've barely scratched the surface. I haven't even mentioned how scholars use these different names for God as a way of determining who wrote which parts of the Old Testament. Of course, we don't know exactly who these authors are, but we do know that different authors preferred certain names for God. For example, the Yahwist predominantly uses the name Yahweh, while the Elohist predominantly uses the name Elohim. For more information on this fascinating topic of where etymology intersects with biblical authorship, check out the early episodes of the History in the Bible podcast by Gary Stevens, particularly the episode Writing the Pentateuch. All right. If you love the show, I'd like to remind you that you can sign up to show your support on Patreon. If that's not in your budget, no problem. You can leave a review on Apple Podcasts, aka iTunes, or your podcast directory of choice. Or you can just tell a friend to come join the party. I'm on Twitter at, at @wordsforgranted and on Facebook as Words for Granted. And you can email me directly with questions, comments, and concerns at wordsforgranted@gmail.com. All right. See you next time here at Words for Granted. I hope you have a great day. <laughs>